I think a lot of people, including myself, can get really hung up on the long view. What do I want to be when I grow up? I still don't know what I want to do next. And to some extent, don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. What I spend time on is like knowing what matters to me that help me then make micro decisions about what to do next. So I don't get like overly focused on what the end game is, but it lets me be a little bit more tactical in terms of these micro steps towards that. I can take any opportunity and ask, is this a good idea? This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This week, we're speaking with Kat Miller, Chief Technology Officer at Flatiron Health, a technology company that uses data and machine learning to help clinicians, researchers, and regulators care for cancer patients. As you heard in her introduction, Kat wasn't ever one of those people who knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. She just followed her nose and focused on what opportunities sounded interesting to her. She calls this micro-optimization. Here's my conversation with Kat. My name's Kat Miller, and I'm Chief Technology Officer at Flatiron Health. So you first encountered AI at MIT as part of your wider degree when you transitioned maybe to that computer science space. So then what did you enjoy about studying AI? So it was a required part of the curriculum, I should say. Like, there's an intro to AI course in the same way there's other required courses. It was just, like, really enjoyable. It was one of those classes where I really looked forward to doing the problem sets. Intro AI is a lot of things that feel like puzzles. So you're working through various kind of basic problems, and you're pretending to be a computer doing them. And it has this really, it has the same, scratches the same itch as, like, doing a Sudoku or a Kokoro or something like that. Cool. And I think oftentimes, or sometimes anyways, we do these like intro courses or like we do our degrees and it just ends up not really giving us much of a foundation. Did you feel like it does? And do you feel that foundational work supporting you in the work that you do today? I agree that a lot of my courses feel like that they weren't super relevant to my later life. So a great example is you study um, algorithms in school and you end up writing a bunch of different search algorithms. And at no point in your professional life, unless you are doing very, very little of a coding, will you ever write a search algorithm? So there's certainly some value in like knowing how the thing works, but I agree with the general sort of idea that it's not super relevant. I don't necessarily feel like what I learned ended up applying to my day-to-day life even now, but something that is interesting is one of the techniques we learned about, it's a very foundational technique called neural networks, and this is from the school of thought that basically says, hey, our brains are the original computer. Let's try building algorithms that look like the brain. That's where neural networks came from. And at the time, I was studying, I guess, early t- the early 2000s. I would say they were presented to me as completely discredited and like something that was like hot in the 70s, and then we learned better. <laughs> and they are the foundation for large language models and ChatGPT. Turns out what we actually needed was just a lot more computing power to make them real. Like everything, there's a lot of value in having some foundational understanding. I wouldn't say I put that understanding into practice in my day-to-day life. And so at what point in your career did you feel comfortable pursuing your own interests? I think I've always felt comfortable pursuing my own interests. I think knowing what my own interests are was always the harder part. When I graduated or when I got my degree, I definitely had a moment or I had this this feeling that I didn't want to be a a coder full-time. I didn't like the idea of being a full-time software engineer. I think if I had known what product management was at the time, I might have veered in that direction. But 
that was like a somewhat ignorant perspective. Like I didn't really know. I've always been willing to to make my own decisions. And I certainly passed up opportunities that could have been really valuable in, in many different ways because I didn't feel like they were right for me. But I think knowing thyself is, is the hardest step or it has been for me. I just want to say that I agree. And I feel like the way I think of it is like, what do you want? And asking myself that authentically and answering it authentically. And so I think almost feel like a kinship with you and that you're like, it's it's hard to ask and answer that question. So thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of people that will resonate with. And so when you decided to move into healthcare, why did you make that move? I also studied economics and I think about this as an expressed preference. So I never sat down and like put on a piece of paper and was like, oh yeah, healthcare. But when I was interviewing for jobs, the first job I ended up taking was in healthcare because it seemed like the coolest one of that. And then the second job I ended up taking was in healthcare. And then the third job I ended up taking wasn't in healthcare, was with one of the most awesome groups of people I've ever worked with. And I did not love it. Like I just didn't feel like I was being my best self in that company. People were amazing and still are amazing. So then my fourth job was in healthcare. It was one of those things that like, I just thought it was fun. Like I was just really interested in the topics. What about it is so interesting to you? I think that certainly there's always that sense of like, I'm doing something that matters. I genuinely think if I'm honest, there's an intellectual curiosity and interest in biology and the mechanisms of healthcare. Something about my brain is good at remembering that stuff and good at kind of putting the pieces together. I can tell you that, you know, vemurafenib is a, is a drug you <laughs> used for treating cancer. Like, why is that still in my brain? It's not super relevant to my day-to-day. So there's a little bit of like, what are you good at and what does your brain retain? I will say maybe as a little bit of context, I am a huge medical drama fan too, which is I think the same thing. And I definitely remember watching ER with my mother who is a pathologist and talking through each episode, like what was real and what wasn't real. So there's always just been an interest in that. Oh my God, that's a great story. Wonderful. So you are the CTO of Flatiron Health. Can you tell us what Flatiron does? Sure. So Flatiron's mission is to improve and extend lives by learning from the experience of every person with cancer. And what that practically means is we have a two-sided business. So one side of our business is tools for clinicians and people who are facing the patient. So think an electronic health record that's used to, to capture patient data or maybe software to help practices keep more financially solvent. So things that face providers. And then the other side is things that leverage that ecosystem and the information that comes from day-to-day treatment of patients to create data sets for being able to do research investigations, to be able to look at the span of cancer as it's treated in the United States broadly and learn from that in various different ways. And I would say our history has very much been this like data story. And now as we're becoming, I would say, a teenage company, it's also expanding into clinical trials and, and thinking about the broader infrastructure of cancer care and what are the places where data and technology can have an impact in the drug development life cycle. So cool. And so what is your day-to-day like as a CTO at Flatiron? Well, I'm sure everyone tells you there is no day-to-day, but I mean, my responsibility is for the technology organization. So I have software engineers and data scientists and security and IT professionals under me, and I am accountable for ensuring that those roles are filled and ensuring that those individuals are delivering high-quality work and creative and sustainable solutions to business needs. There's just, in some sense, a lot of like uh, flexibility and perhaps ambiguity in what that means. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible for the technology that the company builds, which enables our business to, to thrive. And what kind of technology or strategies are Flatiron currently implementing to help cancer patients? 
So the the sort of original story was uh, real world data. So I mentioned like this data that is generated from patient experiences. Less than 5% of patients end up on a clinical trial, which means that there's a whole bunch of learning about how their experience of the disease is and what works and what doesn't that never ends up reaching anyone who is working in the cancer space. And so the original fundamental premise is, hey, if this real world data was more accessible, um, we could learn a lot. And in particular, we could learn about patient populations that are not well-represented in trials. That's women, older people, people of color. And the goal of that, in some sense, is to speed drug development and increase the likelihood that really impactful drugs make it to market. So something like 80% of clinical trials don't recruit on time. And there's a whole lot of factors in that. But some of it is trial design. Some of it is not knowing where the patients are. Some of it is like not understanding even what the patient landscape looks like. One of the ways we can help is help with that design of trials, help identify where patients are for those trials. We can then use the the real world data we have to understand how treatments work in diverse populations. A drug that works really well in a 60-year-old may not work as well in an 80-year-old. We can understand more about the lived patient experience. Again, on trials, compliance is much higher. Patients continue to take that drug um, because they're getting checked in on and you know they're getting it for free often and, and those kinds of things. Fast forward a year after the drug is approved, you'll get very different compliance, maybe really different efficacy. And so the ability to track what's happening in the real world and a faster and cheaper way to demonstrate efficacy. A drug may work in one setting and you want to know, is it efficacious in another setting? Is it as good as what's out there? Real data can be a solution for that as well. So there's a lot I could say, and there's a, there's a huge piece of infrastructure that is being developed in our country and in, in our healthcare ecosystem, but that's kind of the gist of it. Okay, so thanks for sharing sort of the data piece, and that was kind of like the origin of it. So how is Flatiron using AI to help cancer patients? Well, I said that our mission is like learning from the experience of every patient with cancer. And a lot of what we end up doing is data curation. So a physician takes a record, and the way they do that is they type down, Mrs. Smith is a very lovely woman in her late 60s with metastatic breast cancer. So a lot of the information, a lot of the really like useful stuff is in these unstructured records. And so part of what we do as a company is extract that into a structured format that you can then use for research. And historically, like the way we started was we used humans to do that. Um, we used trained humans who were obviously HIPAA trained and all the rest of it, but we trained, used trained humans to do that. We still do, but that limits that ability to learn from every person with cancer. And so I think a big thing that AI can do for us, and frankly, in the general ecosystem, is take that ambition where we want to learn from everyone and we're learning from a big sample size, but not everyone, and really expand it. So we're thinking about every patient that we touch, every patient that we have any access to, we can absolutely learn and get all the rich, good information from them. So I think that's a really good starting point. That's perfect. And I think that really does give us the insight into like how AI is developing in your organization and just generally in the healthcare sector as a whole. But what kind of challenges are you seeing in that as AI starts to kind of be injected to help us in the healthcare space? I think that there is a huge opportunity. Something we know about healthcare in general is that physicians are overburdened, overworked. They hate working in their EHRs and they spend a lot of time in front of the computer. So I just talked about um, extracting structured data from notes, basically. There's already a huge opportunity that's starting to happen around ambient scribes. So can we just scribe notes from the physician talking, which is becoming much more possible than it was, for example, five years ago. And for those of you who maybe use like Dragon or or something else like in your day-to-day lives and you're wondering like, I do this every day, why why doesn't it work for physicians? Some of it's just the specific lexicon of medicine. There is a marker called EGFR and that can either mean a marker of kidney function 
or spelled differently, it can be a biomarker for cancer. And having it wrong in the record is actually a very big problem, especially if it's not checked right away. So it actually is like a substantial problem to do this in healthcare. But I think something like that, and then the ability to take information from notes, whether it's typed or heard through a scribe, and be able to take that and populate structured fields that then allow the physician workflow to go faster. So then later when they want to know something about the patient history or something that they recorded in a freeform note, it's maybe then more easily available to them um, in a structured form and that their workflow can can pull it in and have them look at it. So I think there's like this immense opportunity to help physicians. I think there's also, and there's a lot of interest, frankly, from physicians. Physicians are also very rightly scared of any changes in their workflow because it presents risks and also makes it slower. And so like there's this tension of so much opportunity, but so much, I think, fear around doing it wrong or making a mistake or even just slowing someone down in the process while they're learning it. And so if we kind of broadened out again in terms of AI generally, what do you think young people in the workforce can do today to get themselves career ready? So honestly, I think the the landscape is continually evolving and the techniques we're using today are much improved from the techniques we were using five years ago. There is basic math involved, so I think there's a certain amount of classic ML is honestly just regressions um, made fancy. So I think there's a certain mathematical basis that's really helpful, and I think there's a data empathy and comprehension basis that's really useful. So how comfortable are you with a data set, getting in there, kind of understanding what it means, playing with it? I think another foundational piece of AI I said that I studied it in the 2000s and the things I learned are not the things we're doing today. So there's a little bit of, um, you know, don't get too attached to the particular technique you're learning, but I think those fundamentals, what is the math? What is the data science? What is the data empathy? And maybe like, what are the tools? Do you know SQL? Do you know Python? I think those are probably like the foundational pieces. So helpful and very tactical. Thank you. So Kat, I'd love to talk to you about your idea of micro-optimizations. How would you define the idea of that and what it means to you? I think a lot of people, including myself, can get really hung up on the long view. What do I want to be when I grow up? Or even in a company, like, what does my product want to be when it's, like, fully mature? I have never known what I want to be when I grow up. I still don't know what I want to do next. And I, to some extent, don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. What I spend time on is, like, knowing what matters to me. So I have, like, a couple tentpole guardrails that are, like, things I know about myself and things that I know are important to me that help me then make like micro decisions about what to do next. So I don't get like overly focused on what the end game is, but it lets me be a little bit more tactical in terms of these sort of like micro steps towards that. So I can take any sort of opportunity and ask, okay, based on like those things that I know about myself, is this a good idea? I don't worry about the big picture really much at all, which I I don't know, maybe that makes me weird, but I feel like that's contrary to a lot of advice these days. Yes, and I think it's a really refreshing view. And I think it's really just a really dynamic way to think of things. So can you give any examples how you've done that in your career? Being CTO was never a goal I had. And probably as early as two years ago, I would have said that it was probably nothing I would ever do, that I wasn't sure it was a job I would like. I wasn't sure it was like the right next step for me. And so actually I was at Flatiron and I was at a point where I had been doing the same job for a while. I was a VP of engineering. I was like a little... I don't know when I don't maybe burnt out on it, maybe just kind of I'd been doing it for a long time and, and kind of felt like I'd done all I could. And I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Like I didn't have a next step. And so what I actually did was I worked with our international team to figure out a role that was both impactful for the company, but really a big shift for me. So I was going to be working in product and was like kind of a 180 from where I'd been. 
again, it wasn't like a career stepping stone. It wasn't like, oh, this will let me do these 10 other things. It was just like, this is a thing I will enjoy. And it gives me something to do while I'm figuring things out. And while I was doing that role, the CTO ended up leaving and, and I was offered that role. It was not a planned stepping stone. There was no master plan behind it. It just happened. And it happened because I positioned myself in a way that made it possible to happen. And I wouldn't have been disappointed or upset or anything if it hadn't happened. I would love to talk to you about the idea of gendered feedback. Can you give me a brief definition of that and then maybe how you've experienced it in your career? Yeah, one way I would think about it is like feedback that you don't think you would have gotten if you were a different gender. Common examples of this are frequently women are given feedback that are based on personality traits rather than work output. And those are often based on stereotypes. So the stereotype of women being very warm, very friendly. So then women end up getting feedback about being too bossy or too aggressive. So that's kind of like how I would think about what gendered feedback is. Do you have some examples? Have you been in a situation where you're like, oh, this is definitely gendered feedback? I think I had like one very big, I'll say, wake up moment in two different directions with that. So a few years ago, I was really gunning for a VP promotion. And I'll say this is the only time in my life when I was like really looking for a promotion. And I didn't get it. And I got feedback. And I actually reread it this morning because I was just so curious. I got feedback that was kind of um, in the theme of you don't play well with others. These people like working with you, but all these people have feedback and say that you're you know, difficult in these circumstances, you're not open to, to ideas. And I took it very badly. <laughs> and I was very frustrated. The feedback was all quotes from people. So these were legitimate things that other people were saying, which is fine, like that is how feedback should work. It should be peer feedback. So it was their opinions, but it wasn't, there weren't examples. There wasn't like, I was trying to do this thing and this got in the way. It was like, I find that cat does this thing, which annoys me. I thought about leaving the company. I put my manager through hell, grilling her about it. And it took a, a while for me to ask the right questions and get specific examples that actually helped me see that although that feedback may be gendered, and probably wasn't the feedback my male peers were getting, it was still valid and it was still making it harder for me to be successful. So that was like a really challenging thing for me to come to grips with. That was a really hard thing for me to swallow. Yeah, and actually one other interesting tidbit is I took it so badly that I was like, okay, fine, I'm gonna smile more and just see what changes. And guess what? I smiled more and lots of things changed. And at first I was like, aha, see, it was nonsense because smiling fixed it. But honestly, it's very hard to be to make a judgmental statement or to jump in aggressively while you're smiling. And so I actually think that I, I definitely believe in the mind-body connection and that you can kind of, there are times when you can fake it till you make it. And I definitely think that actually the act of smiling more over time, once I stopped doing it more cynically, actually led to me kind of getting towards this breakthrough of realizing that I wasn't giving other people space and time to think things through and to, to work with me. Can you tell us about a time when you felt that you were in your element? So when I was offered and accepted the CTO role, a friend of mine threw me a party. I'm not a party person. I, I, not a lot of people have thrown parties for me in my lifetime. She threw me a party. She had her kids like paint pictures for me. She got these giant CTO balloons and she really just celebrated it. And she celebrated it as like, it is so cool that you did this thing. I want to celebrate you and this achievement. That was amazing. And we went to dinner, we went to the theater and she made me take these giant balloons with me and it was like hugely embarrassing. And, you know, it was like the, the, whole, the whole shebang. 
but she really made me feel like I'd made it, like I'd really accomplished something. And I think it's so easy for, especially I was a, a single person at the time. Um, I'm not particularly close to my parents. And so we don't necessarily celebrate each other all that much. And in particular, like your spouse is meant to celebrate you and maybe your parents are meant to celebrate you, but, but other people don't necessarily. And so that was a very unique experience for me. And it was a good, like, it was awesome. I felt in my element and I also felt like wow, it's so important to like reflect and appreciate and celebrate these achievements uh, along the way. That was my conversation with Kat. What were some of your key takeaways there? The thing that really struck me from that conversation had nothing to do with tech and everything to do with just humans. The whole performance review process, the transparency around the promotions, and just how, frankly, she expressed her frustration about the whole thing. And it really rung a bell. This morning I was reading a newsletter that actually was reflecting on the annual performance review process. And interestingly, 36% of managers and leaders in that survey agreed that promotions should be more transparent. The same study found that 60% of large enterprises are still following the same sort of status quo, collecting this feedback and yes, it's very direct and then following some kind of a closed door process. So I think there's a lot of people out there who would really resonate with Kat's assessment of receiving this feedback. And it's a double whammy, right? Women get feedback like either you're being too aggressive versus you're not being direct enough. You can't please anyone and everyone. And at the same time, those quotes are then used pretty directly to influence things like promotion. It's a process that's outdated and really isn't serving anyone any good. You're turning away talent. So boy, it feels like in 2023, we should be a lot further ahead than this. So I'm glad that she gave it a voice. It's true. I will say, I mean, one positive note, not sure that it's, you know, going to be implemented across the board, but at least in some of our technology partners and some of the firms that we know of that are a bit more cutting edge are starting to implement sort of a more agile approach where they are doing a bit more regular assessments, not sort of once a year or twice yearly, but sort of like on a more regular cadence, like maybe per project or once a quarter. And it's kind of, I think we're seeing, or at least from what I've heard, that that seems to be a bit more accurate. So maybe we can hope that we'll see sort of a more regular cadence will bring down that bias and sort of bring up the transparency and just have overall more positive effect on feedback. So Corinne, what did you reflect about after that conversation with Kat? I thought what she mentioned about her career and the path that it's followed, it wasn't like she mapped it all out and it all fell into place and it came perfectly aligned from her, you know, original vision of how, what it, how it would project. It was sort of like it all fell into place and she wasn't sort of, like she said, overly focused on what the end game is. She just rode the path and it sort of all fell together. And I think it's a bit affirming maybe like for me and for maybe some of our listeners that like you don't have to have that grand plan all worked out. You can just sort of, what resonates with you? What are you interested in? Follow your passions and like it will present itself and to have that confidence and that the path is going to, it's going to fall in line. It's going to present itself. It's going to lay out in front of you and it's all going to work out. The only data point you have is a little bit of listening to yourself and seeing the tea leaves and you interpreting it. It's not necessarily this plan that has been vetted or approved by others if you're looking for validation outside. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us next time to hear more meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening.